It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. I'm Brian Whitman with my friend, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, for the third exciting podcast in the vast catalog of Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. And of course, you can peruse the website. Got a lot of blog entries. You are on that internet a lot. You really are. Yeah, I am. By the way, is, is three now definition for vast? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just I want to thank uh, Patrick Doyle, uh, the um, artist who wrote the theme from Thor. Which, which is, is what we're intro- hearing, right? Which is what our introductory music is. I just happen to think that the most beautiful orchestral music written in the last half century has been written for movies. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm a big soundtrack fan, and so that's what... People were wondering, this is Earth to Asgard, and it's from the first Thor movie. I think there's a new Thor movie coming out uh, soon. I'm, I'm so the excited. The Dark World. Yeah, I can hardly... How come everything's dark in the second round? Like, well, because uh, that's all that you guys with these movies do. That's why I don't know. I don't see these Thors. I don't see these Batmans. I don't see these Men of Steel. You're missing out. Because Except it's, for that one. it's always dark and the first batman with michael keaton 1989 or something yeah, it was just on the other night by the way it was it with just jack, on? with jack nicholson in it, yeah. right he, he plays the joker right correct right right it's it's great uh, yeah oh it's the best oh i got a live one here <laughs> it's your jam right i love it i love the bat dance but when this was on the screen i fell asleep in the movie theater it was i was in fort lauderdale i remember where i was i was 16 i was born in 1972 this came out in 1989 1989 is right that's right okay see i was sitting in about the third row from the screen because it was sold out and my friend richard and his son josh who was probably now 30 years old or well, he's got to be 20 josh right he was like a kid we went to the batman movie and he took me, and he was real excited. And we sat there, and, you know, it's a, when you get to the movie late and you can only find three seats and it's, you know, two, two, screens, uh, two rows from the screen, and I'm looking at it, and I fell asleep because it's dark, and it's, uh, it's just, I fell asleep. A little too gritty for you. A little too gritty, I think. Yeah, Randy, word. did you find it as boring as Brian did? No, it was, <laughs> I mean, I was six, I was, I was less than six when I came. It was one of my favorite movies ever, ever, ever. I go back to it, not as exciting as some of the recent films, but it's always been a fun, badass movie, and one of the best Jack Nicholson performances of his career. You want answers. I love it when yeah, Jack, but, yeah, uh, it's just the greatest. You know, I love all- for the mirror. What's interesting, Brian, is you just said, you just talked about how you had to sit in the third row because there were no seats. Correct. Something. It's very nostalgic when you talk about that because nowadays that doesn't have to happen anymore because you can take out your smartphone and you can pick the movie you want to go to and you can buy it online and you can pick the seats. And, oh, yeah. Well, if you, you have know, that doctor money. And you can show up. You know, there's, I can't remember really, honestly, the last time. I, I actually do remember the last time I waited in line for a movie was a midnight showing of one of the blockbusters that came out a few years ago. But even then, most people get those tickets in advance as well. Right, but this was before they had reserved seating. So At you had the Arclight, they had the reserved seating, right? Now, almost every theater nowadays has reserved seating. I've been out of the house that? in 15 years. Tell me what it's like out there. Right? <laughs> oh, have you been to a movie in this je- in this decade? You know, I can't, I can't remember the last movie I was at. I really can't remember the last movie well, I was Well, the theaters at. now, Brian, they like some of the local theaters where I live up in Westlake, they have... 
uh, Sinopolis, which is a thing where you can Sounds go like in. A disease. You go in. Have you ever diagnosed Sinopolis for someone? No, I haven't. Right. I haven't. I haven't seen a case in the last twenty years. Right, of Sinopolis. But the chairs recline all the way oh, back. That you push one. a little button, and the waiter comes to you during the movie. You can order food during the movie. Some of the theaters serve alcohol, and it's it's like a huge uh, huge thing. And you know what they charge for a ticket? Like fifteen dollars, nineteen dollars, nineteen dollars. So you're getting that experience for five bucks more than a regular ticket, right? Well, yeah, and if you go in mat, I mean, they don't even have a matinee price, so it's it's a ripoff, but it's a nice ripoff, and it's certainly (laughs) it's a luxurious rip. If you're going to be ripped off, do it luxuriously, right? Might as well. Yeah, see, I mean, that's why I said to you a moment ago, you've got that doctor money, you've got that walking around doctor cash, right? Where you can do, I mean, you can take your daughter to a movie that's thirty eight dollars for for the doctor and his daughter, nineteen and nineteen. It's under forty. Thirty. It's under forty. $40, it falls well, in. but then you got to get the thirty-four dollar popcorn, uh, candy, and oh, yeah. soda stuff too. So it cost my do- it cost me and my daughter seventy-five bucks to go to the movies. Right to go to the movies, and uh, but by the way, uh, to me it just seems uh, you know. You know, I, but doctors, you know, doctors, we, you know, we're just loaded. We're all driving Porsches. We're course. like that. We're like that commercial with the guy though, on the motorcycle who's made of money, and the money's just flying behind him. <laughs> uh, I don't even know what that's for, but it's a really kind of a cool commercial. Right. I have no idea what the product is. But. Is that an unfair? Is that an unfair characterization of doctors in 2013 that they've got all this cash? I thought, you know, doctors, it was sort of uh, that was the thing to do. I mean, I can. My mom, by the way, if she had her, if she had her druthers, you think I would be in radio? Of oh. course not. How did that conversation? I just said, Brian, what are you going to do? I said, I have no idea. And my father said, well, why don't you learn a trade? I said, well, I can't do that. I'm not sophisticated enough. My mom said, well, why don't you go to medical school? I said, well, who's going to pay for it? She said, not me. I said, all right, well, then where are we? She said, I, can you do impressions? I said, <laughs> so you well, turned I, to Rick Dees. Yeah, I, I said, well, I could do a Jack Nicholson. You want to answer? She said, that's great. Now go do that. Call the radio station, and the money will come later. And... Um, it came, but then it went, which might be the same for doctors, right? There was those halcyon go-go 80s for the doctors. The go-go 90s for the radio impressions. Right, go-go 90s for any guy in radio who could do an impression of George Bush. I mean, it was a cash register, Dr. Stu. You should have been there with all this money. But then it just went away. It went away. I, you know, I think, Brian, when you said, uh, how are you going to pay for um, medical school, I thought, well, you know, Brian, you, you actually could have joined the military. Oh, I guess you're you right. Could, you could be Colonel Brian Whitman. I think that would be Retired. disturbing to anybody, right? Over oh, the R E T at the end, or just yes. the R, right? Yeah, Colonel Brian Whitman. I think that would scare yeah, anyone. The Colonel, maybe that'll be your nickname for this. Uh, the Colonel, this, this episode. Right, right. I am the Colonel. We Colonel. should actually, Randy. We should actually come up with a nickname for Brian every every episode. Oh, so. he'll love that. Yeah, so. I, I'll help you. I'll help you. Uh, I'll help you uh, create them. Yeah. Well, you know what? Um, medicine. Medicine. <laughs> so, so would you be Colonel of the Damaged? King of the Damaged. I am your king of the Damaged. I am the king of the Damaged. Medicine was a a lucrative field uh, a long time ago. Uh, But you understand, Dr. Stu, that's a disconnect for a lot of people. When they hear a doctor, and I'm going to talk to you about this because I have a theory on this. When they hear a doctor, kvetching, you're a nice Jewish boy, right? You know what kvetching is. I'm yep. not even Jewish, but yeah, I know what yeah. Cain. Cain. Cain is uh, yes in Hebrew. Oh, see, oh wow, he won up with the he. I played the Jew card, and he won up to me. Well, you're you're always you're always being won up by a Jew on your own radio show. <laughs> <laughs> ben, ben Ben gets the better of you every time. Yeah, I don't I don't know what Alicia is. Uh, she's the last name Kraus, but it, I don't think she's Jewish. No, I don't think she is. No, right. no, she's a she's a Christian. She's okay. a nice Christian okay. girl, and of course, Doctor Ben Shapiro is my co-host <laughs> on the Morning Answer, who's always one upping you. Always one upping. Yeah, he. Would be he would be a general to your colonel. I think. Okay, that's fair. Now the, the kvetching, uh, people hear this kvetching from the doctors. Oh, it's not what it used to be. Oh, I don't make enough money. Oh, this. Oh, that. And people they hear this, they go, 
I would trade my lifestyle with my doctor's lifestyle in half a second if I could. It's true, don't you think? Uh, it depends. There are certain pract- uh, there's certain uh, specialties which still are lucrative, and they're the hardest residencies to get. Uh, it has the acronym ROAD, R-O-A-D. It stands for radiology, ophthalmology, anesthesia, and, of course, the D stands for? Dementia? Well, no. No, let me, your, uh, a dermatology? Correct. Oh, dermatology. how about that? I have psoriasis, by the way. Can you diagnose this? Those specialties, there's something nice about those specialties because either there's no call or there's no hospital responsibility. What does no call mean? You mean they're not up at night on call. <laughs> oh, I see. The anesthesia, sometimes if they're in a group, they have to uh, take call periodically at the hospital. But otherwise, you know, people do routine surgeries. In the, if they work at a surgery center, they work from 7 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. Dermatologists may have banker's hours. Uh, oh, I like love a the infighting. hour dermatologist. Oh, yeah, I need a 20. That is psoriasis, right? Can you take a look at that, really? Do you see that on my, show, on my elbow? If there was an on-call 24-hour, you could just call them dermatologist would you call him every night and say i got something you guys right. can i text you a picture of this right yeah, it's, I... either, it's either psoriasis psoriasis or tertiary syphilis but i i really can't okay. do we get to that day and I age now doctor we'll have to do a biopsy um... we'll do a biopsy after the show yeah let's do a bi- i was taking skin tabs putting them in envelopes and mailing them to the doctor he said no don't do that well yeah. when i was a dermatology uh, rotation as a as a student they said you know the the two keys in dermatology if the rash is wet you dry it if the rash is dry you wet it <laughs> there you go yeah, and, that's, and then you charge like a uh, hundred bucks for the visit I, I and you know, that. acne is never going to go away. They got a they got an endless supply of clients because oh. you're never going to cure acne. It's never right? Gonna there's go always going to be a 15 year old kid with radical That's acne correct. who That's eats right. too much pizza. Exactly, and only adds to the acne, and they just it's wild. But I, I wanted to ask that uh, the uh, I, I love sort of how the doctors within the doctors field are sort of oh well the dermatologists they have bankers hours. But you, knowing radiation and ophthalmology, right, and anesthesiology and dermatology, you went into obstetrics and gynecology. So what were you thinking? Uh, I wasn't. And, and I tell you that, that back when I did it, which was a long time ago, we're talking about the early 80s. Was it the early 80s? Yeah, early 80s. Um, it was a whole different thing then. Nobody talked about the uh, hours and the liability because it – there were great rewards in that time. I mean, you uh, you could come out and you could really make a, a a very good living, and you could get loans from banks just because you had the MD after your name, and you were h- highly regarded. And you know what? And you're still highly regarded. I still think if you uh, survey people, I think they think more the, h- the highest regarded specialties are things like being a fireman, being a doctor. Yeah. Uh, pl- probably a policeman still. I think lawyers still, although there's the jokes <laughs> about lawyers. There's a joke about lawyer, but if you need one, while well, you look I, up I to them. I don't think they're so highly regarded, but but uh, okay. yeah, I mean, everybody, it's like it's like everybody thinks that a lawyer, that lawyers are scum, except everybody loves their lawyer. And everybody thinks that their doc- all doctors are quacks, except everyone loves their doctor. So there's a, there's a disconnect between the math and, the, and that situation. But when I was, in, when I was coming out of uh, medical school and had to pick a, a choice, I picked obstetrics because I had just done rot- a rotation in hematology oncology, which is uh, can- uh, blood type cancers, leukemia, lymphoma. And I actually did a rotation in pediatric hemonc. And I had spent six weeks with young kids who were dying of cancer. How sad, right? And we would push chemotherapy at night. We'd have to take care of their seizures at night. Oh. We lost some clients on that. And you're up at night taking care of really sick people. And my next rotation was obstetrics. And in obstetrics, we were taking care of young, healthy women who were at the hospital for a happy reason. And 
in obstetrics, you not only take care of young, healthy people, but you see them get better. You can take care of them over years. So you have what's called longitudinal care, which I found to be really desirous. I didn't want to be a, an ER physician or an anesthesiologist who sees a patient, takes out their uh, sliver or their gunshot wound and never sees them again. I like the idea of seeing people year after year after year after year. And the only professions that really do that are internal medicine, uh, family practice, and obstetrics. And internal medicine, family practice didn't get to do surgery. So we got to do surgery, endocrinology, psychiatry, uh, obstetrics, uh, longitudinal care, and, and deal with young, healthy people was really exciting. Now you say young, healthy people. Are you finding that in your years of, of, uh, of treating or caring for is really probably the better way, uh, pregnant women, that the age is going north? Women are becoming pregnant or at, at later stages in their life. Am I, am I, I'm just observing as a guy watching this, and it seems to me that women are having babies older. I think it, a lot of it has to do with the socioeconomic conditions, a lot of women having careers, and they might have a career for 10 or 15 years and then get married, and they push off having the children to later on in their life. Yeah, that's true. It's very, uh, very cultural uh, differences in age. You know, if you look at the west side of Los Angeles or Manhattan, for instance, yeah, you know, your average pregnant woman is 30 to 35 years old having her first baby. If you go to the inland valleys or if you go to even up toward Oxnard, uh, the average pregnant woman is 21 years old having her second baby. I mean, it is, it is clearly a cultural difference. Some of it's economic, but uh, some of it is purely there's a different feeling uh, with the advent or increasing in feminism and you know, women can have it all, and if you're not a woman with a career, you're nobody, mm. and then what happens is, is women put off childbearing because they want to find a career, and then they find that, that you know, males' roles in their lives are being belittled, and so, you know, they don't really need a man. You know, the whole thing about a woman needing a man is like a fish needing a bicycle or something of that yeah, nature. Yeah, right, right, right. And uh, so they, these things get pounded, especially if they go to university. Things always get delayed as they, if they go to college. These things get put off. Then they get a career, and they do really successful in their career. They can be a CEO of a company in Beverly Hills, and you know they find them suddenly. They find themselves forty years old without a husband and without a kid, and they want that, and they're extremely unhappy. And yeah, maybe they are happier in their career than the woman who got pregnant when she was twenty-three and has three kids at home. But by that time, but but that woman, by the time she's forty. Her kids are almost out of the out of the house, so she can then go get a career if she wants to. And she's had her kids when biology says that it was really easy for her to have her kids, as opposed to women who are forty and forty-five. And some of these things that you see, um, I think like Halle Berry. I can't speak to Halle Berry's details, but I think she was in her mid to late forties when she just had a baby recently. People always say, "How did she do that?" And I said, "Well, we don't know, but there's a lot of potential for assisted reproductive technology." Here, it wasn't necessarily a spontaneous pregnancy from the old-fashioned way. No. Right. A much more planned out. That well, You know, my, my mom had me. She was 25. She had my brother. She was 22. My dad was the same age. I mean, you don't... It, and you'd have to assume when you hear those stories of, like, the 66-year-old woman who gave birth to twins, that wasn't planned. Like, oh, that wasn't just, hey, we're, we're having fun. Here's what happened. That was, uh, yeah, hey, the, the, the let's oct- get some research going. The Octomom was not an accident, as it turns out. No, the Octomom was not an accident. I mean, she was obviously trying to get pregnant. There were certainly some, oh, questionable uh, medical uh, use of putting in all these eggs. And I don't know the whole details, I happen to know the, her physician, the one who got disciplined by the medical board, and that, and he's a wonderful man. So that was unfair what they yeah. did to him, you thought? 
well, you know, I don't know if it was unfair or not. I don't know the pressures he was under from her and from other, you know, from the surroundings to do that. I, I don't. I don't know, so I can't Is even comment on that. Is it a doctor's responsibility, but, though, to cut a woman off at that yes, point? Yes, yes. There, there's no excuse, medically speaking, for what he did in this case. You don't put that many eggs back in a, in a patient. You just don't do that. If they want to do that, then you ethically tell them, you know what, I can't do that for you. If you want to do that, go talk to Dr. So-and-so, get another opinion. And there's always a Dr. So-and-so who will do it, right? Well, apparently. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, but get, yeah, eight kids. I mean, it's not, I, I saw Oprah, you know, had this special on with her. Well, it's eight after she already had six. It's her yeah, second she's litter. she got 14 yeah, kids. Yeah, carry the one, that's 14. I'm not a doctor, but your math is right, isn't You're not it? a doctor. I'm not a doctor. It's eight and six, 14 kids. I mean, it's like, you know, she has a classroom. Yeah, well, not only that, but... Uh, and I'm not, a, you know, again, I hate to go outside my own expertise, but everybody, but, you know, obviously this is Dr. Stu's podcast, so right. Dr. Stu gets to do whatever he wants. Correct. And I can have opinions, and I just don't know how you can have 18 or 14 kids uh, who have no father, whose mother is sort of a little bit crazy at, uh, as if. At best. At best. Well, she's got to run off every month to go to a strip show who's, in Florida. Who's raising these kids? And what's the opera? What are oper- I mean, obviously, maybe they'll get money because there's they're a novelty. But after that wears off, who's going to parent these? Kids? Well, the Oprah, what's going to happen to these kids? The Oprah I, thing that I saw, and I'm not making it up. I really did see a special that Oprah Winfrey did on it. It said that you know she was back on. Oprah did sort of a timeline of you know having interviewed her and uh, said you know she was back on public assistance because you know she was just having a tough time. It's interesting to me when you talk about sort of you know how how uh, women might have careers or they're desirous of a career early on. They go to university, they have a career 10, 15 years, and then they're desirous of a husband, perhaps, or a family and children, and they go and they do that. It, it sounds to me, as somebody who, an OBGYN, obviously which you are, to what extent are you dealing with the psychology of, of, of the woman who comes in? I mean, obviously you're dealing with the biology of two but you're, you must be dealing with psychology as well. You are, and and even though we have no formal training in psychology as obstetricians, clearly there's a huge psychological component to any to, to a woman's life in general, but even more so in pregnancy. And you know, one of the things that I advocate, and I'm so happy that I'm doing now, is what's called the midwifery model of care for pregnancy, because we spend an hour at each prenatal visit, and not six minutes or seven minutes, which is the typical obstetrical model. Of care, and in an hour, you can start to get to the things that really underlie other underlie why a pregnancy may turn sour. You can deal with nutrition, you can deal with sleep, you can deal with stress, you can talk about relationships, you can talk about things that she fears. You can uh, help her with these things, which then explains why there's better outcomes mm. when you can deal with things. But clearly, there's a psychological component to you know, look at. I mean, men have it too. There's there's, there's not not a big difference. But the psychological component of women, especially women who delay childbearing, and stuff like, it, it is, it, it's, very, it's very sad for me to watch sometimes, to see women come in who are so good at what they do and so lovely, but they... You mean in career? Career and, in, and just in, in, life. in, in ambiance and person. Right. And they aren't with anybody because they were so told that that was not as important and then the weird thing is, Brian, is that women who do this, they go through all this training to become a lawyer or a doctor or a CEO or whatever it is that they become, and then they reach their late 30s and they say, oh, shit, I haven't had any kids yet. 
And so they end up having a baby. And then what's the, after they have a baby, what do they want to do? Go back to work. No. Be a mom. Correct. Right, okay. And so all that training, all that stuff, and all they really wanted to do in the long run, now some of them go, I mean, obviously a lot of them go back to work because financially they have to or they have responsibility and all that. Isn't it sort of nice to have that balance? But if you just ask them, what would they really like to do when they have a six-month-old baby? Do they really want to leave the baby at home with the nanny and and be at work and not come home till eight o'clock at night and not put their baby to bed every night? Uh, No, no. I mean, even, even I as a man loved putting my kids to bed at night. I can't even imagine not coming, you know, not uh, being a woman and, and being separated, having to pump my breasts all day long so that someone else can feed my baby milk all day long. Mm. I, I, I can't imagine. And, And so all these women, they go through all this, training and thing to become something and then ultimately a lot of them figure out and I, i'm not saying this to be chauvinistic in any way i'm talking be realism here they to to really all they really wanted was to be a mom and a, and, and potentially a wife or not or or have a, have a partner i don't care if it's a male or female partner but to be in a domestic situation and raise children in such a setting and it was and it got so belittled when the feminist movement got way you know the pendulum of the feminist movement swung way too far. It's now it's starting to come back, and women are starting. To, you know, the next generation of women, the, ex, the generation Xers, and the ones, the people that are the millennials, the, 20, well, the millennials, the millennials right? they're right. going to be smarter than than a lot of, uh, you know, the baby boomer generation was. And I, I would assume, Doctor Stu, in uh, that pendulum swinging, you're seeing that firsthand. Obviously, when you're interacting with with uh, with clients, I mean, you're because you're exploring sort of the. You know, yeah, I, I'm just the, reporting the life pattern. I'm, I'm just life. reporting what I'm seeing. Right, right, right. And I think that every physician or midwife has a, has stories to tell about what they see. And if you're in practice long enough, you begin to see trends. You know, I, I uh, you, you mentioned uh, you know the pumping of the breasts a moment ago. I saw a story just this morning, which I hadn't made a note of this to bring this up, but it said that uh, children who are breastfed are smarter. They have higher IQs. One of these studies where they were tracking, I guess, sort of the IQ of, uh, of, of kids who were breastfed as opposed to kids who weren't. Turns out they're smarter. And pe- you know what? As I sit here right now, I don't know if my mother breastfed me. It was a conversation I could never have. I could probably tell you that she probably breastfed you for a short period of time. But now, what makes you say that? Because that was the trend back in the 60s and 70s was, was to maybe breastfeed for a few weeks and then, and then transfer over to formula because at that time the medical thought was that formula was just better than breast milk because it was fortified and everything else as if we could do something better than Mother Nature could do. It's not my stunning IQ that leads you to... Uh, uh, no, I, I'm wondering how smart you and I would have been had we actually been breastfed for, for, for breastfed for two or three years. Is that what you think you would recommend? Like two or three years is a good natural time. You know what? I three years old. I don't. A lot of you know to put him. Well, to you bed can ask for it at that point. <laughs> Forgive me, that's a little creepy. It isn't is. Cre- it? it is creepy to you. It's not creepy to a certain segment of the population. Do you, do you have a problem, Brian, by the way, with the women breastfeeding in a restaurant? Well, you know, I, I, you know what? I'm not the guy who will walk out of a restaurant because a woman is breastfeeding. But I do have, and we've talked about this on the radio in the past, I do have sort of a desire to say, um, 
Is that a Neanderthalic desire to say? You know, I, I think it might be. I think it might be a Neanderthalic desire, but I do, you know, time and place, you know, what I mean? discretion, right? Discretion. Even Dr. Stu, I mean, we're not advocating at the Starbucks right there, just, you know, blah, whip it out wherever you are, right? Well, they don't whip and it out. They have very subtle ways of doing Not all. It. Not all. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, there are some. You have know, you been just, disturbed at a Starbucks by uh, just a flopped out? You can tell, Randy, that he's got it's scarred him for life here. I mean, it must have had something that something must have happened. I might have a little bit of an issue with it, right? Hey, bare breasted Starbucks have you seen? Not a lot. Not a lot. But 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 there certainly are there are a few examples, you know, at Burger King. Really? Well, girls, let's let's getting let's, back to your question about breastfeeding. Um, uh, look at nature. Nature does. Breastfeeding does so many great things, right? I mean, nature's designed this. It's, it's been evolutionary. There's so many things in breast milk besides the calories that are so helpful to babies. And, and as far as healthiness, I mean, breast milk has large amounts of antibodies in it and stuff and, and, and nutrients and other things that, that you really can't duplicate by formula. When, you know, they will tell you, uh, your pediatricians will tell you this, if they're, uh, if they're aware of these sorts of things. But if your baby has a little bit of an eye infection or something like that, what do they tell you to put in there? Breast milk. Oh, really? Yeah. You don't have to go get eye drops or medical eye drops. Breast milk. What's in breast milk? It's full of antibodies. It'll clear up most, you know, uh, slightly infections in the eye or that sort of thing. It, it's, it's miraculous. And I, again, well, one of these times we'll bring on a midwife. Yeah. Actually, we're going to do one of our talks about the midwifery model. Bring a midwife. Bring this question up because they are trained in this stuff. This is one of the, the, the detriments of the medical training that I had is that I don't think I had in four years of residency and four years of medical school before that a single lecture on breastfeeding or nutrition. I, they didn't train that sort of thing because that wasn't the medical model. And it really was a disaster for, for the care that I provided in the first years of my practice because I didn't know stuff that I know now. You know, it's very interesting, Dr. Stu, when you talk about, for example, the breastfeeding and you talk about how, uh, you know, th there might be an eye infection. You put some breast milk in there along with, I guess, you know, what the whatever the medication is, right? Or just breast milk alone. It'll clear it up almost in immediately. See, I'm glad you said that because, and when we talk about the, the home birthing, and obviously you do that, and that's where your focus is now on having babies at home. There is almost from you, Dr. Stu, this sort of retreat from the science. Is that fair? Is that fair? I mean, it's I, absolutely unfair, Brian. You're being unfair. I'm being unfair. I don't want right. to be unfair. You're, 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 you're equating Western medical, modern medical, industrialized medicine with science as if it's the only science. I feel like a lot of people do that. Well, of course. I mean, you, we've been, it's pounded into us. They just follow it blindly. Three, three generations of Americans have been indoctrinated to believe that the, the Western medical model is the greatest model of all. And you know what? It is for a lot of things. I mean, look at the advances in, just in life expectancy alone, but also in quality of life. You know, I'm 57 years old. When my dad was 57 years old, to me, he looked like a really old man, mm -hmm. and he acted like a really old man. Now you, you know, whatever said the new, the six, you know, who, who put it, what Geraldo put out yeah, the seventies, the, the new fifty, 50 or right? Spare like us that. the tweet, Geraldo, right. please, with yeah. the with the towel and the glasses. Do they have to do a big headline for that? Hi, everyone. I'm Geraldo Rivera. Seventy is the new fifty. And here's the proof, and then he tweets it out. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I well, don't need to see that. You didn't need to see that, did you? No, you don't need to see that. But it it is it is a sign that that. Uh, this is where, where things are going. Yeah, see, but it's unfair of me to say that it's a retreat 
from science or that it's because be, uh, holistic. I mean, I'm trying, you know, when we talk about the having the babies at home, we talk about you do have sort of a earthy. There's an earthy quality. to It's it. just a location. The baby's still being pushed I the same way. No, I know. I know. I know. And I guess I'm somebody you would have to work on. But if I were a dad or a dad to be, I would sort of want. That hospital, you, you, you're you almost cocooned, right? You feel like, I guess if you're in a hospital, although it might raise a lot of stress, to be in a hospital probably brings a lot of stress out in a, in a woman who's giving birth, just sort of the environment of the hospital. It's a frightening place. It's a place for sick people. It's it, You know, they're doing their best. And again, some hospitals are doing their best. Some of the local hospitals here are making great efforts in, in trying to make hospital more like home. But you can't make a hospital more like home it ends at a certain point because everything about being at home is about feeling safe and nurtured and not being interrupted and the things we, things we that- talked about in one of our earlier podcasts about the mammalian model of birth yeah right we sort of talked about all this stuff about aging and things like that but but and we talked about that because we decided that western medicine has done major miracles in 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 improving our health but there are certain things that Western medicine can't do as well as other things. And what we need is a collaboration between East meets West. It would be really nice if Eastern physicians and Western physicians could, could find it in their hearts to, to share clients and to, you know, I refer patients for acupuncture, homeopathy, naturopathic uh, physicians, chiropractic care, mm-hmm. these sorts of things. A lot of physicians don't do that. There's not much of a dialogue between East and West? I think there's a lot of Western physicians who sort of think of of alternative medicines as being just that. They're sort of lesser medicine. They're underneath them. Last resorts, maybe? And, and Well, not even last resorts, but something sort of to be mocked or ridiculed a little bit. When a woman comes in telling you all the vitamins she's taking and the supplements she's taking, I just know that years ago I would just sort of listen to what she I would never make it openly that I was rolling my eyes if you can roll your eyes without really rolling your eyes and I think you can right yes you can right and I would sort of just say oh this is one of those people and then I realized that you know what she's a lot happier and a lot healthier and a lot of it is in your brain as we talked about you and I on the side there's a lot of um, uh, placebo effect about things there's a lot of things that people think are helping them they may very well help them and without taking advantage to people. I'm not talking about selling snake oil. I'm not telling about doctors who overprescribe or naturopaths who sell the products just to make money. But there's somewhere in between a happy medium where people can find that this is what's working for them. You know what's interesting to me, Dr. Stu, is when you talk about these issues, your evolution as a physician, I mean, you know, society's evolution is one thing. The overall sort of evolution uh, of 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 the female, right, of, of women. But your evolution as a physician is very interesting because you sort of said a moment ago that, you know, early on in your practice, you said things or you treated in a certain way that you would never today. Yeah. Isn't I, that interesting? It, it is interesting. And I, I, you know, I can't even tell you specifically how I came to be where I am right now. It wasn't just one thing. It was just a s- sequence of events that just brought me into a situation some of which was of my own making, some of which was some things that I had no control over that 
I was exposed to things that I saw working. And again, this is the thing about, about wisdom. You know, my, my daughter, she tends to roll her eyes when I tell her stuff. Okay. <laughs> right. But she's, she's 16. My right, daughter so is 16. She needs to be rolling her eyes when dad says stuff. I, she does that. And, but we had a good conversation about this the other day is that we said that I said, Madeline, you make it sound like everything I tell you is, is silly. Do you think that I have a lot of wisdom? And she goes, well, yeah. And I go, do you think I had as much wisdom when I was 16 as I have now? Mm. No. Did you have as much wisdom when you were six as you do when you're 16? No. Do you think you'll be wiser when you're 26 than you're at 16? Yes. Then why is it that you roll your eyes when I tell you stuff? All of her answers were right. Right. But, did, you know, she's 16 and I'm her dad, and so she rolls her eyes. But, but it took me a long time to reach a point where I can combine things, and I can admit that I don't know stuff. I love the fact that patients ask me questions, and, you'll, uh, and I'll say to them, I don't know that. Let's look it up. Let's go, on, let's go online and look it up. Or, you know what, I'll, I'll text my friend, the naturopathic doctor, and I'll get back to you this afternoon I with think some most, information. I think most doctors I've seen in my life would be horrified, terrified at the proposition of telling a patient they don't know the answer. That's right. That's right. That was me 15, 20 years ago, and I think it's a lot of physicians right now can't, are not comfortable not necessarily saying that they don't know because they're supposed to know. But you know what? You can't possibly know everything anymore. There's just too much information. I read a lot. And my colleagues, we take courses. We take continuing medical education called CME courses. We get journals. We have the internet. We go to meetings. We, we learn a lot of stuff. But you know what? The brain can only hold so much. So we sort of you know, can't remember everything. A lot of guys now, especially with smartphones, they don't remember the dose of a medication. They just look it up on their smartphone and pull up. There's apps for that to, to pull up what medications you need and what the dosing is. Why do I have to remember that anymore? Right, when technology makes it so convenient to just look it up. Right, it, and, and you just what, what doctors are should be facilitators of health. We should help people find what works for them. We shouldn't think that we are know-it-alls and we, we, that we know everything. You mentioned the looking up. We should spend a little bit of time here, and we'll talk about it more in the future on the medical records and the electronic medical oh. records and how the looking up for a doctor is is so convenient with these medical records. I mean, I guess the positive spin on it is that it's information sharing and a doctor can have sort of a full picture, a full spectrum view of your medical history. But the frightening prospect is that it could be shared so easily. Well, yeah, it wouldn't surprise you to think that I'm not a big fan of electronic medical records. And the reason being is that in practice of what I've seen so far is it doesn't save time. It doesn't seem to be more efficient. I don't know that there's any data to prove that patients who have their records on electronic uh, systems are actually having better outcomes than people who don't. And I always resent the idea that we're forced to do something because it feels good or it sounds good when there's actually no data to support it. And I'm very, I'm very uh, skeptical of the motives of people who want electronic medical records. I think it's about bean counting. It's about controlling medical care in the future, it's not necessarily about better health. For instance, I give you an example. I transport a patient from home to the hospital. In labor, very uncomfortable, she wants an epidural, she's been in labor for 30 hours, and she finally says, I can't take it anymore, I want an epidural. So the plan maybe was a home birth, but at this point it's not an option. Correct, I'm just giving this right. as a spe specific example. We get there at 5.30 in the morning. She doesn't get her epidural till 
20 in the morning. It's an hour and 50 minutes later. What are we doing for an hour and 15 50 hour and five zero minutes? We're entering data into the computer. The nurse is sitting here not making eye contact with a patient who's sitting in the bed moaning every three minutes while she's asking her questions about, you know, her mom's history, how many tattoos she had, when was her last menstrual period, does she have hypertension, when was, you know, all these things. These things are irrelevant to the current problem, but the nurse can't get her admitted until all the little boxes are filled out because the hospital won't admit her until she has every little page and every little, and I watched the nurse dry lab a lot of this stuff, which means she didn't ask the patient, she was just checking boxes just to try to get through the pages so that she could get to the point where she's admitted because until she has a bracelet from admitting, she can't have her blood drawn. Until she has her blood drawn, she can't have an IV. Until she has an IV, she can't get her epidural. She can't deal with the pain. You can't deal with the pain. And you know what, all this is because some, we have, we, we can't focus on the problem anymore because electronic medical records gets in the way. And quite frankly, I just think that it's going to make some corporations who make electronic medical records extremely wealthy. And I will bet you we'll find out 20 years from now that except in rare cases where, you know, it's important to have uh, results of a CAT scan from somebody in Cleveland because they fell down in uh, in Los Angeles, right? But otherwise, we're going to find that it's not going to be very helpful, and it's certainly not worth the cost that every physician's going to have to bear, not only for the initial software and and hardware, but for yearly updates, because you can be sure that the medical record companies will constantly change the software so that you'll have to buy a new one. You have to upgrade every year. I mean, right. whether it's Microsoft Word or Quicken or whatever else, you got to buy a new one every every couple of years. The bank no longer accepts my Quicken and I'm forced to buy a new Quicken even though my Quicken was working just fine for me. Right. Well, I didn't want to I uh, plan was to talk about your Quicken, but uh. I got it. <laughs> well, it's it's a metaphor for Right, uh, sure, sure. For no, what's going to happen right. with electronic medical records. We have seen it uh, we have seen the evolution already. And doctors who fill this out, they, they far, make far less eye contact with, a, with, a, with a, a patient when they have to fill out medical records. And they, because of the way that doctors have to space their patients because of decreasing reimbursement for each patient, there's no time between patients anymore to do the records. So you sort of have to do it as you go along, or you have to do it at the end of the day when you don't really remember stuff anyway, and you just have to fill out boxes. And how accurate is it? And really, it's true about any sort of medical uh, sorry, computer type system. It's garbage in, it's garbage, garbage out. out. Yeah, right, right. And how do we know that the patient really says? And by the way, patients don't necessarily want to answer truthfully, because they don't want to know. They don't want the whole world to know that maybe they did heroin when they were fifteen. But maybe their doctor should know that. But maybe they don't want that on the electronic medical records because they don't believe that. It's going to be confidential. Yeah, let's let's take a moment here. We just have a moment. We, speaking of the of the records and the the exposure of information, do you want to tell the the marijuana story about the patient? Oh, it's a brief story. Yeah, I mean, before this all became this was before electronic medical records. I was an honest physician, and when a patient gave me a history, I wrote everything down. And a patient once came to me and said she smoked occasional marijuana. So in the substance area, I wrote down occasional MJ. That's in the chart. In the chart, correct. I wrote it handwritten in, wrote in the chart. Patient eventually, a year, couple years later, moves to Colorado. She's looking to get new health insurance. They send for her old records. And because she smoked occasional marijuana seven years earlier, they denied her health insurance. Oh, wow. So you felt responsible. I'm I sure. felt responsible. And what I tell patients now is tell me the truth and then we'll decide whether we want to write it down or not. 
Wow, that's honest. Well, yeah. what are you going to do? And this is how the information may or may not be used in the future. And quite frankly, in my own personal life experiences, my daughter, if she were to have a problem, like say she had a knee problem as a 16-year-old growing too fast and she needed to have an MRI or an X-ray of her knee, I'm going to tell the radiologist, I want to pay cash for that. I don't want it anywhere on the record that she had this done. Because I don't know if 30 years from now she has a knee problem. Someone's going to come back and say, oh, you were 16. You right, but we shouldn't have covered that. Yeah, we shouldn't co- we're not covering that, or you have a limit on that. And, I, and I'm worried about that sort of thing, and maybe I don't think that I'm paranoid. I think that I'm practical. And I think if people stop to think about this stuff, look at what, where, you know, what's happening with information now. I mean, the National Security Agency is supposed to be the most secure place in the world. And we're chasing some guy in the Moscow airport we, who's given out this information. Some low-level guy got all this information. And, and, and the and WikiLeaks guy, and you've got, you know, do you believe your medical records are really going to be secure when, you, they're, when some insurance company, cubicle worker in Connecticut has the right to know that some movie star it was just treated for herpes? Right. Is that going to necessarily be confidential? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. And it's something that we all need to ask questions about before we blindly go along with this whole process. It's coming. I may not choose to join it. I may not choose to join the Obamacare system. I I don't take insurance right now. I don't want electronic medical records in my office. Uh, I don't want to be uh, dictated by an insurance company who I can see and who I can't see and what I can charge and what I can order and what drug I can write for and what test I can order. And I haven't... You know, I have to. I actually had a patient once who had throwing up in pregnancy, and I wanted to give her a drug that really works well for that, and, and to what, limit the, the the vomiting, to limit up the vomiting in pregnancy, and the and the insurance company denied coverage because she hadn't been hospitalized yet for it. So they well, wanted, so you have to vomit to the emergency. You room. have to vomit to the point of dehydration before you can have this medication. Yeah, isn't that wild? And this is what's coming. Yeah, and getting you know looking at the story about the little girl with cystic fibrosis who had to try to go through Kathleen Sebelius to get a lung transplant. I mean, really, should those decisions be made by Big Brother and by government, or should they be made by doctors and patients and, and the hospitals, in their neighborhood hospitals? Yeah. Those rules are gone. They're gone. They're gone. And that, those days are probably not coming back. And I feel a real, we talked about nostalgia earlier, I feel a real nostalgic loss in the, in the Marcus Welby days, which are, are no longer yeah, isn't that interesting? We'll explore it more. We'll explore that question about, uh, you know, is the, the personal relationship going away? Is it sort of going into thin air? It's a, it's a great conversation. Thank you, Dr. Stu. DrStu'sPodcast.com. DrStu'sPodcast.com. Check it out, and there's a lot to be read there and a lot to be explored. And, of course, we'll have more podcasts. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for uh, leading the questions and bringing us to things. That, I know this was more like Dr. Stu's monologue today, but but uh, <laughs> I liked Randy's it. Randy's shaking her head. Shaking his, well, there's, a, there's a lot more in there, so we'll, we'll see you next time. Yeah, that's great. DrStu'sPodcast.com. For Dr. Stuart Fishbein, I'm Brian Whitman. Thanks for joining us.